Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be able to make friends and just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, and put things like today in context. So why don't you call me at 1-800-743-CBC, or of course, tweet me at Jim Kramer. All right, what the heck happened today? The Fed finally gave us the rate cut we've all been waiting for, right? I mean, it gave us exactly when what happens. Well, the market just implodes. Dow plunging 334 points. S&P plumbing 1.09%. NASDAQ news diving 1.19%, huh? Honestly, there was nothing shocking about Fed Chief Jay Powell's statement, but a lot of people don't seem to understand how the game is played. Powell told us this rate cut was basically insurance and not the start of a new easing cycle. That upset everyone who was hoping he'd say, well, we're going to get a lot of rate cuts galore, including those betting the dollar would decline. It didn't. But that's not what happens, people. The Fed is supposed to be cagey about this stuff. That's kind of their job. Remember the last time Powell told us his long-term plans in October? Well, the stock market crashed! (laughs) Promising a series of rate hikes was a big mistake. He's not going to make the same mistake here by promising a series of rate cuts. He's not stupid! Of course, President Trump piled on about how Powell let us down. But remember, you can easily say that Trump let us down by firing Yellen, who is much closer ideologically to Trump, and then putting Powell in. Enough Powell bashing, for heaven's sakes. He's now on the case, even as there's plenty of evidence, positive news, uh, enough to befuddle some of these Fed watchers that maybe he shouldn't cut at all. You know my view. It was time. Got to roll back that cut. I mean, that, that increase. And yes, I do want another if things falter, Okay. That December one, you know, I didn't like that. But a lot of people do not understand how things work. So calm buyers turned panic sellers in rapid fashion. And then the whole market got slammed. And you know what? That's a good thing. It lets you buy the stocks of high-quality companies at a discount when people were just throwing them away because of fear. A lot of people were selling stuff they didn't even know what they were selling, for heaven's sakes. Consider the biggest winners from this incredible month of July instead of being so crying in your beer here. Many of them are down there. When you look at these leaders, you don't find many companies that rally in anticipation of a rate cut, I'll tell you that. No, you see a list of companies that shine because of good execution and strong demand. The ones that don't need the Fed are absolutely worth buying to the sweetness. Let's start with the biggest winners in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and then we'll move on to the S&P 500. The best performer in the Dow this month was a stock that leapfrogged over its peers because it reported a terrific quarter yesterday, Procter & Gamble. It's up 7.7%. This is that rare story where conviction trumps discipline. On Monday, I was on a halftime report where Melissa Lee was hosting. She asked me point blank whether you should buy the stock ahead of the quarter. I talked glowingly about the turnaround, how well CEO David Taylor is doing at the helm. But then I warn you not to chase because the stock had rallied so hard into the print. 
Then yesterday, Procter delivered some spectacular organic sales growth up 7%. That's staggering for such an old-fashioned consumer packaged goods company that had been struggling to put up low single-digit numbers for ages. We would have been happy with 4%, for heaven's sake. Every category looked good, including the ones, intractable ones like grooming, which really hurt them. Turns out Procter deserved to run. The thing, uh, the thing went from a blue-chip dividend play to a growth stock literally overnight, a senior growth stock, not unlike Starbucks. We're seeing a lot of these. Next up, here's another stock that roared in the wake of good quarter. Of course, Apple is up 7.6% for July. I'll have more to say on this one later, but it soared today because it posted a quarter with growth all over the place. Apple now has a more consistent, sticky revenue stream thanks to its subscription-based services business. And when you combine that with the strength of the wearables, it's become the real driver of the stock. Now, buyers don't care that much about the iPhone sales disappointing because the wearables and the services are the future. Investors always pay up for more stocks with recurring revenue. Tim Cook's Apple's making that transition like he would ever get credit for it. Well, it doesn't deserve the same price earnings multiples the aforementioned Procter & Gamble, which, by the way, would uh, put this $213 stock at $280. I think the valuation is too low. And Apple should be trading more like a consumer packaged goods company or a cable company, not a plate or hardware company. When you judge it by the same metrics as those in the industry, say by measuring the lifetime value of subscriber to Apple's burgeoning paywall offerings, it's clear the stock is way too cheap. I say own it. Don't trade it. Next month, Apple launches, well, it's like tomorrow, a new credit card with the help of the third best performer in the Dow. Goldman Sachs, also up 7.6%. Goldman's pivoting toward more of a recurring revenue model, too, which is what the market really wants. The stock's been rallying like mad because investors love fee-based businesses and not episodic trading-based earnings. I think it deserves to sell at an even higher valuation. Gigantic buyback will help them get there. I just hope Goldman's ready for the Apple Charge card. The fourth best performer in the Dallas, a real blast for the past. IBM is up 7.5%. Some of the buoyancy is just the stock bouncing back from a very low level, compressed by last year's mini bear market, pal bear market. But most of it is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. IBM closed on its acquisition of Red Hat, and that could spark a return to growth and excitement for this once moribund stock. I think the run makes sense. And even up here, it still has a 4.3% yield. I'd be a buyer. Finally, here's a total oddity Intel. The company didn't really do much to deserve a rally this month. It was strictly a BTF situation, better than feared. Speaking of chip makers, by the way, I like competitor AMD on its hideous 10% dip today relative to the company's lighter guidance, something you should have expected, but still it managed to shock people into selling. I hope you watched the interview with Lisa Sue this morning, CEO. Terrific. That's the leadership in the Dow. How about the more important S&P? It all starts with Twitter, which finished the month up 21%. With this quarter, the company reported last week, we know Twitter has become the destination choice for advertisers because it's a choice destination for users. I think this will be the uh, the start, really, of a series of good numbers. I'd be a buyer in any week. Ned Siegel doing a really terrific job as CFO. Number two is a short squeeze. It's Micron, up 16%. This is one of the biggest battleground stocks in the entire market because it sells commodity semiconductors, of which prices go up and down and up and down and up and down. And they were in down mode. There was glut coming into the month. If you want to gain Micron, you need to predict the supply and demand for the two main products, DRAMs and flash memory. The price of both seems to have stabilized sooner than many people thought, especially the short sellers. Going forward, Micron, I think, is going to be a little hostage to the trade talks with China. It sells a ton of product to People's Republic. While the stock got slammed today down more than 5%, I think it could be, uh, let's say, enticing a couple points lower. Third is one I never talk about. Universal Health Services up 15%. This is one of the nation's largest health care providers. They run behavioral health facilities, acute care hospitals, and ambulatory centers throughout the United States and the U.K. 
UHS reported an excellent quarter last week, and more importantly, they announced an agreement with the Justice Department to effectively settle an investigation into the company's behavioral health facilities, getting rid of a major overhang. That allowed the company to double its dividend and add $1 billion to its buyback, which is why the stock caught fire. CEO Alan Miller is a legend in this business over the past 10 years. Stock's up 440%. S&P up 196, same period. I am joyous about the next July winner. It is UPS. United Parcel up 15%. Here's a company that's been plagued by a high-quality problem. They got too much business they couldn't handle. The CEO, David Abney, has been spending and spending on capacity, and now it's finally starting to pay off. Ka-ching, ka-ching. I never thought I'd say this, but the truth is UPS may be doing better than FedEx. It's got that 3.2% yield. I like that. Finally, there's Discover Financial, another one I never talk about, also up 15%. Market loves these financial technology plays, particularly on days like today, when riskier stocks, which is what the banks are considered to be, get slammed. Right now, Discover is playing catch-up to the heavy hitters in the space. And then you always think of Visa, MasterCard, America's Express. When you compare it to the other big credit card companies with no credit risk, meaning excluding American Express, Discover's been a laggard, up 25% over the past year versus 30 for Visa, 37% for Ma or MasterCard. Over five years, it's even more glaring. Discover's gained 62%, Visa, 249%, MasterCard, 279%. At long last, though, Discover's gotten its act together, it's playing a little catch-up. Here's the bottom line. When you get days like today where you see the panic people on something and then you're trying to figure out why they panic and you make up a lot of stuff, the hair trigger traders don't know what they're doing. They decide that the Fed made a disappointing move. Even though we got exactly what we wanted, nothing more, nothing less. Look to those July leaders for guidance. And in some cases, you're going to find some solid buying opportunities. Sal in New York. Sal. Hello, Jim. Booyah from Dix Hills, Long Island, New York. Nice area, Sal. What's shaking? First off, I want to thank you for taking my call, and also thank you for all the tedious research work you do for all of us who watch your show daily. Thank you. Thank you. you. Those are the 3 a.m. The 3 a.m. Sorry, Lisa Days. Go ahead. I'm sorry. We appreciate that. Anyway, I want to get to, uh, I want to ask your opinion on the ticket GPN, Global Payments. Last week, it dipped below the 20-day moving average to uh, 162, so I added to my position in my IRA. What's your long You did the right outlook? thing. I've been reading a lot of Lisa Ellis from uh, Moffitt Nathanson. She's actually, I've decided, the best payment person. We both just love GPN. I think you got a good one. Yeah, the moving average is going to give you a chance to be able to buy more. Why? Because that franchise is so solid, and I welcome them back on the show, please. They've been doing a lot of good things. All right, the Fed gave us what we expected, for heaven's sake. But somehow traders, traders were disappointed, so they panicked. That's what they know to do, and that's the opportunity for you. As always, own it, don't trade it, Apple. Mad money tonight. President's talked a lot about infrastructure spending, but so far it's been all talk and not a lot of action. So how was a company like Martin Marietta able to post such strong results? Well, we got asked the CEO, right? Then, a few weeks ago, I encouraged you to be cautious in the cannabis space, uh, but I think few expected such a rapid deterioration in the cohort. I'm taking a deep dive. And my breakup breakdown continues. I'm now eyeing recently spun off Contour Brands. My view on it is going to shock you. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. 
CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. With the market melting down today after Fed Chief Jay Powell gave us the rate cut we expected, but I guess he was cagey about promising more. Let's not forget about what's going right here. Yesterday, Martin Marietta Materials, uh, which is really a remarkable company. It's the big maker of construction materials. Think aggregates, cement, concrete, asphalt. Reported a truly blowout quarter, and the stock exploded higher. It surged 10% in a single session. How'd they do it? Martin Marietta delivered a $0.09 earnings beat over a $3.11 basis with a modest revenue beat. But the major development here was that management felt comfortable enough to raise its full-year forecast. Do you know the stock is now up more than 40%? The business, just for this year alone, the business is on fire, especially in the Midwest and Southeast. While Washington hasn't been able to pass an infrastructure bill, although there's some good news in Washington, there's still enough federal and state money right now to get things moving here. But don't take it from me. Let's check in with Ward Nye. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Martin Marietta Materials. Get a better read on this incredible quarter and where his company is headed. Mr. Nye, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Ward. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, Ward, I remember when when, uh, Martin Marietta spun it off, and I said to myself, as a hedge fund manager, this is one you don't want to touch. This is going to be cyclical. It's going to go up and down. It's going to raise its dividend. It's going to cut its dividend. It's going to have big losses. 25 years later, none of that happened. How come? You know what? It's been incredibly steady run for 25 years. We've never cut a dividend. We're careful on our costs. We are, we're able to get pricing all the way through different cycles. And really, if you look at what's going on relative to infrastructure, non-res, and residential, we've been in the right places. And being in the right places with the right products makes all the difference. I'm glad you mentioned that because you are in states that have done better than the rest of the country. Because in some ways I said, I hope Chairman Powell doesn't read how you're doing because you're doing much better. But You've also executed it in a way that makes me feel like that there's a bit of a secular growth theme here, even when you may not have, expect to have that in aggregates. Well, we're, we are in the right places. Our teams have performed extremely well. I think what you've said is right. We're principally a southeast and southwest business, so we're where people are moving to. So if you look at population trends, if you look at employment, if you look at state fiscal health, those are the things from our business that really make a difference. But we also take good care of the cost side of our business. We recognize if we're selling aggregates for $15 a ton, we better be really good at it. And, and we are good at that. Now, uh, you did this quarter without basically Texas and Colorado, which are two very, very fiscally well-off states uh, because of weather. The weather was that bad. It was wet in Texas and Colorado. Those are our top two states by revenue. But what we're seeing, and you, you outlined it in the prelude, what we're seeing in the Midwest, what we're seeing in the Southeast really helped carry the day. And we like being in a position that we could have a beat as we enter half year, raise guidance, as you said, for the rest of the year, and have the the top two states actually hit by weather a lot in the first half of the year. Uh, I thought that was amazing. Now, uh, the one thing I, when I was listening to Jay Powell today, I was thinking, geez, I, I, residential, how's residential? Well, you've got some great markets for residential. We, really we do. doing well. If, if you look at national statistics, they're not that overwhelming. If you look at the stats in our top 10 states, and the top 10 states are 85% of our revenue, we're outperforming the nation, whether it's on total, single housing, or multi-housing. And, and multi 
has stayed very, very healthy all the way through this cycle. Now, I've got to tell you, I didn't think much at all of what the federal government just did the other day. But you made me encouraged. You seem to think that there could be something there for infrastructure. Well, it's interesting. The EPW, the Environment Public Works Committee in the Senate, came out, and they're looking at an extension to the FAST Act. They took the spending up 27%. So, again, this is coming out of a Republican-controlled Senate. We like the look of that. Now we think it goes to the House. House Transportation and Infrastructure will come out with their plan, likely more than that. The issue is going to be this, Jim. How are they going to pay for it over the long term? They haven't seemed to care about a lot of that lately. Well, the interest, they, they haven't. <laughs> but the other thing is we're hearing more and more talk about moving away from a gasoline tax. We're looking okay. at different forms of user fees, but moving away from a gasoline tax in the fullness of time is something that states are increasingly looking at and the federal government's going to have to look at as well. Okay, so I read in your transcript at one point, you say something good about Georgia and Georgia spend. Mm-hmm. How does this work? What, it's, how do you monitor it? How are you ready? Because I mean, for all I know, Georgia, I mean, that's something, is it good or bad? But it's, you call it out as something that could be very positive. Well, here's what we see. Georgia has basically doubled its transportation spend over the last three years. That's incredible. Texas is at near record levels. Florida is as well. Almost every one of our top ten states over the last three or four years has raised their revenues relative to what they're spending on transportation in the states. So we have seen a shift, really more of the burden to the states themselves. If we see something come from the federal government, it can be incredibly powerful to our business. Now, uh, when I, I hear that, I say to myself, okay, that is not necessarily a reason why PAL shouldn't have moved. In other words, you're talking about specific events and things that happen in your areas because you've picked those areas Correct. and not necessarily that, that interest rates are low and people are starting to build all over the place. The, the, the takeaway from what you're saying should be if you execute well, you can do well in this environment, but if you don't execute well, it's, enti- it's entirely possible that things won't, be, won't bail you out. The Fed won't bail you out. We're seeing some markets that are very good markets for us that are still 25% off mid-cycle, pe- mid not peak, <laughs> and we're performing extraordinarily well in those markets. Well, then what should happen is if you want to continue the expansion, some of those states are going to go back up to levels that you're ready for. That's exactly right. And, and that's the important thing to remember. We can meet the demand that contractors need in those different states. We have the capacity to do that. If we look at where we were several years ago, we put 205 million tons of stone in the ground. Last year, we were 30, 40 million tons of stone below that. And still made that much money. And, and still had a very, very good year. So 810% gain. Since you came public, which is rather extraordinary, uh, I, for an aggregates company, I mean, you really should be very proud because a lot of those companies have come and gone in this period. They don't even exist anymore. No, you're entirely right. And, and as I've mentioned before, we have an extraordinary team of people. They give me the privilege of telling the story. They put up the numbers. Well, I'd say your whole team is good and you're good, too. That's Ward Nye, the chairman, president, CEO of Martin Marietta Materials. Guys, when this came public, I'm telling you, it was one of my big concerns for the market. That was wrong. The big concern was not buying enough. Stay with Craver. Three weeks ago. I warned you that the cannabis stocks had suddenly become, let's say, a lot more risky. Last year, this whole group traded on hopes and dreams. This year, it started trading the actual numbers. And those numbers, well, they simply 
haven't matched the wildest expectations of the bulls. I told you the marijuana space was going to get a lot tougher going forward, but even I had no idea it would get this bad this fast. Over the past few weeks, the whole Ganja group has been crushed with some truly hideous breakdowns. Most of the group is down 7 to 17% since I warned you about the industry. I knew Wall Street was becoming more critical of the Cheech and Chong cohort. I didn't know it would deteriorate like this. There's a cloud of pessimism here, and not just because these companies keep failing to live up to early expectations. On top of the not-so-hot numbers, there was a particular Canadian cannabis producer known as CanTrust, C-A-N-N-T-R-U-S-T, with a particular problem. See, CanTrust ran afoul of the regulators. Earlier this this month, it was forced to announce that it had been deemed non-compliant by Health Canada for selling product that was grown in unauthorized rooms of its main cultivation facility. Remember, marijuana may be legal in Canada, but it is also heavily regulated. Then last week, we started hearing reports alleging that CanTrust executives had knowingly skirted the regulations and misled regulators. That's why over the course of this past month, this stock has lost more than half of its value, plummeting from $5 down to $2.35. As the scandal keeps blowing up, the pin action has been horrendous for the rest of the group. Some analysts are talking about a cantrust contagion. So how bad is this problem for the cannabis cohort? Should you be afraid or is this the moment to be opportunistic, using the weakness to do some buying some of the higher quality pot stocks? Okay, we're going to start at the epicenter of the decline, the cantrust meltdown. Here's a company that got its medical marijuana license way back in 2013. Management claims they make standardized products that allow doctors to give patients accurate doses. That's so hard to get. They're trying to grow weed uh, that's as, almost as consistent as actual pharmaceuticals. Think GW Pharma. Why that stock's been so great? Because you can dose it. Now, these guys have got a big greenhouse right across from Niagara Falls that could potentially produce 50,000 kilos a year. They're adding more square footage in order to double production next year. And they've got a manufacturing center where where they turn their plants into finished products that can be sold at dispensaries. CanTrust recently acquired a bunch of land in British Columbia for outdoor cultivation. um, That could add another 100,000 to 200,000 kilos capacity by the end of next year. They were expanding into new categories, too, including over-the-counter products, natural health care, health and beauty, even pet care. So this was a super growth play. CanTrust listed on the New York Stock Exchange in February, but after an initial run up to $10 in March, the stock rolled over and it spent the last four months being clobbered. It's now lost more than 75% of its value from its peak. So CanTrust had already been a loser for months before the big meltdown in recent weeks. These guys were hardly alone. The whole group's been under pressure, like I mentioned before, but it was, it was, this was still a uniquely poor performer. The culprit? Investors started caring about the actual results this year. Remember, remember Bruce Linton was fired from Canopy. Actual results matter. Uh, the numbers have been disappointing, to say the least, in some of these stocks. Can't trust in particular. In March, Can't Trust reported a nasty shortfall on both the top line and the bottom line, in part because of lower pricing, especially for oil products. While the company announced a 10% price hike for many products, it wasn't enough to offset the lousy numbers. Still, there was some good news, too. 
In April, CanTrust got a license to expand its main cultivation facility, but they were still waiting on approval from the Canadian regulators to start the next leg of that expansion. And they also want, waiting for permission to start growing weed outdoors in British Columbia. The land could potentially produce 75,000 kilos by the end of the year. That's a huge increase given that they grew less than 10,000 kilos of cannabis in the first quarter. All told, management was talking about having 200 to 300,000 kilos of capacity by the end of next year. This is symptomatic of the broader industry. You had yet another company talking about its planned productive growth and its estimated capacity, uh, though all this was a d- done deal. But in 2019, well, 2019, marijuana investors are a little sick of plans. They want returns. They want results. The next leg came down in uh, April, late April when CanTrust announced a $200 million major secondary offering when the stock was trading at $7.52. At the time, this was about a billion-dollar company, so that was a big slug of stock, and the deal ended up pricing at $5.50. Ouch! That's the context for the recent meltdown. On July 3rd, CanTrust admitted that production expectations needed to be ratcheted down. they have been guiding for 75,000 kilos from the big outdoor farm, but Health Canada still hadn't even given them a permit. So management told us the real number could be like, 15,000 kilos for 2019 if they got approval within the next month or closer to zero if the regulators waited until August 5th. Brutal! And that wasn't the worst of it. On July 8th, we learned Health Canada had deemed CanTrust main production facility in Ontario non-compliant. Facility has 12 rooms, but five don't have licenses yet. Health Canada charges that the company was growing weed in those rooms. Nearly half the facility, and then they were lying about it. The regulators placed on hold 5,200 kilos of cannabis that was harvested from these rooms. They can't sell it until they comply with the rules. Due to the inventory freeze, CanTrust said some customers could experience product shortages. Since then, the stock has been radioactive. Didn't help but a Canadian newspaper leaked emails showing that CanTrust executives had known about the malfeasance. Last Thursday, the CEO was fired and the chairman was forced to resign. Stock actually rallied 17% on the news. Tacked on another 9%. Uh, when uh, the interim, new interim management announced a strategic review, well, they're looking at options to turn things around, including putting the business for sale. But who knows if any buyers will be interested? Now, there was another big cannabis story last week. Cureleaf Holdings, a U.S.-based company, had a dust-up with the FDA. They inked a big deal with CVS to sell cannabidiol products, also known as CBD. But it turns out there's CBD lotion, CBD pain relief, CBD vape pen, and CBD tincture have been deemed unapproved by new drugs by the FDA. After getting slammed, the stock managed to bounce back. They may just need to change how they label the stuff. Still, it is clear the FDA is starting to flex its muscle against cannabis. The fallout from these two mishaps has devastated the entire sector. Nearly every pot stock's down 5 to 20%. My view, I think you need to be incredibly selective here. I still like canopy growth and Kroners, two best funded Canadian cannabis plays. But these are long-term stories. You need to be prepared to buy them gradually on the way down. The bottom line, when it comes to the marijuana space, the new paradigm It means you need to stay away from companies that only have vague plans pending regulatory approval that are losing a lot of money. Stick with the big guns like the well-capitalized Canopy and Kronos that are ramping production. And even then, be prepared for a lot of pain as weak candid investors continue to get shaken out and the players with deep balance sheets are scrambling for cover. The House of Pain. Andrew in New Jersey. Andrew. Hey, also, a.k.a. Big South from Somerset. How are you, Jim? Hey, how's it going? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Hey, listen, I'm going to talk to you about Turning Point Brands, TPB. I got to tell you, I picked this up a few months back, right? And it was in like the uh, mid-40s. I knew it had good gains past three years. 
And they used to open up Canada. They started getting, so I said, this has got to be a win. You know, because they make like zigzag papers and then things like that. Right. You have up in Canada, all they do is smoke and go to comedy clubs. That's all they do, have things that win, right? Right, so anyway, right. Yeah, right now it's gone down. Like, I don't even know what's going on with it. My wife. Well, and this is a, a group move. This is a group move, Andrew, because you're absolutely right. This is, a, this is a good one. It actually makes money. It's got plans, but it's being pulled down by its compadres. In that kind of situation, I think you've got to stick with it. Doesn't mean you can buy it. You've got to wait for the group to bottom. This, this tape has gotten very tough, and it's very tough on stocks like this. All right, when it comes to the marijuana space, I had to do this piece. I've got to tell you, because this can't, they're, they're, you need to know why things are going down, right? Uh, I still think you got to be ready for even more pain. Much more man money ahead. Contour Brands was spun off from VF Corp at the end of May, but is it time to wrangle an investment in the new company? I'm offering my take. Then, what's Apple stock really worth? I'm doing some back-of-the-envelope algebra and offering my take. And all your calls rapid-fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. When you're running a big company, sometimes the best way for you to create value is by breaking up the business. Lately, it feels like more and more executives understand this. It's why United Technologies is splitting itself into three companies. It's why Dow DuPont, DuPont reports tomorrow, did the same thing. Last night, I told you to steer clear of Corteva, their agriculture spinoff, until we some sta- see some stabilization in the ag industry. Remember, that's an industry that is, uh, let's just say, waiting for a big Chinese order. But it's not just big industrial conglomerates that have realized breaking up is easy to do. Earlier this year, one of our favorite companies, a company that is really strong, Great management, VF Corp, the apparel kingpin you know as North Face Vans. Well, they spun off its slow-growing jeans business. VF wanted to be more of a growth company. Who can blame them? That's what this market likes. Now that the Vans brand has caught fire with younger consumers, we've profiled that many times here. While their jeans division, Wrangler and Lee, well, it threw off a ton of cash. It wasn't growing very quickly, and it had become a drag on the company's growth profile, even though it's kind of a storied couple of brands. So VF Corp jettisoned their jeans business as a new company. It's the oddly named Contour Brands. I'm going to spell it for you because it's so weird. K-O-N-T-O-O-R. But you need to know the symbol. It's K-T-B for all you home gamers. And you know the funny part? While Contour was a drag on its old parent company, I actually think it is worth owning as an independent business, as a spinoff. While it's gotten a really icy reception from the market, there's a lot to like when you bother to look under the hood. I don't think anyone's bothering. I know this sounds odd. We've gotten used to hearing about Wrangler and Lee as an albatross around VF Corp's neck for years. In the latest fiscal year, VF had 12% revenue growth, but it would have been 16% if it weren't for these darn jeans brands. The segment's been struggling for years. Denim's been struggling. Sales are down about 7% since 2016. Earnings have collapsed. 2016, the jeans division brought in $480 million in profit. 2019, the 2019 fiscal year, $300 million. Wow. Now, some of this weakness was because department stores uh, in North America have been struggling. It's the same problem as Levi's had yesterday when we talked to Chip Berg, who's so terrific. You know the stores. I have to tell them some of them are trading under a dollar. Let's just say, you get it? I think that's some strategic actions getting out of Argentina. But when you put it all together, Contour now says that 80% of its adjusted revenues decline came from what they call episodic events, meaning the problems were short-term in nature. They were temporary. Still, VF Corp was just sick of being dragged down by this troubled division. 
one that accounted for 19% of the company's sales. So they spun it off a little over two months ago. No one's talking about it at all except us. Basically, Contour didn't belong under the same roof with faster-growing brands, Vans, Timberland, North Face. But as an independent company, I think there's a good reason to own this one. Wrangler and Lee are, as I've mentioned, they're storied brands, not relics, even if the category is struggling right now. They're the number two jeans company in the U.S., where Contour gets 73% of its sales. They're the number one player in men's jeans here. Lee is actually a major player in the Chinese jeans market, too. But the main reason to like Contour is that it's not a growth stock. That's what VF Corp didn't want, didn't want for. Contour is a dividend stock with a magnificent 7.2% yield. Try to get that from a bond. It's not too dangerous. If you're an investor who wants income, this one's pretty enticing. Why is the yield so high? Isn't that usually a red flag? Well, on its first day of regular way trading in May, Contour closed at $38.60, but since then... It's been clobbered. To be fair, the spinoff did happen at a terrible time, right when the trade tensions with China started escalating again before the Federal Reserve indicated that a rate cut was on the way. During that dark period, Contour plunged to 25 bucks and change. Over the past month, though, it's been able to bounce back to $29.33 as of today, although that is a decline of 5% from yesterday in the terrible trading. Now, it's not just the dividend that I like. Contour's management team has laid out the bull case here, and it's pretty darn straightforward. Wrangler and Lee have always been quality brands, and despite the recent hardship, they believe they can turn things around by focusing on the earnings and then earning the trust of investors. On top of the huge dividend, they're planning to expand Wrangler and Lee into new channels in new countries. At the same time, they know that priority number one is to turn the margins around. They think they can get there by optimizing the business, Wall Street speak for uh, paying, uh, cutting down costs and, uh, and paying debt. I think there are a lot of costs to cut here. Goals to generate profitable, low single-digit revenue growth. Remember, not everything can grow 20 30%. Uh, and that will allow Contour to throw off a massive amount of cash and reward shareholders with perhaps even higher dividend. The company actually spells this out very explicitly. Long-term, they're targeting an 8 to 10% return for shareholders, 5% for the dividend, and the, uh, the other 3 to 5% for margin improvements, eventually modest revenue growth, specifically management shooting for a 60% dividend payout ratio, meaning they want to distribute 60 percent of their earnings to shareholders via that juicy dividend. I like that. Now, given how tough things have been in the gene space, the real question is, can Contour deliver? Management points to their durable and consistent cash flow. When you look at the numbers, you can see where they're coming from. In every year from 2008 to 2018, 10 years, the company generated at least $300 million in cash. However, that number peaked above $500 million in 2015, and in recent years, it has deteriorated, coming in at $363 million in 2018. The company was hammered by its ailing wholesale customers. Remember, they're still ailing, okay? They're still ailing. Um, the department stores that we know are uh, the story department stores. Well, let's just say I think a lot of them aren't going to make it. These are levels Contour hasn't really seen since 2010, which, you know, is right out of the recession. So I think we need to be very conservative with our cash flow forecast until Contour proves otherwise. When you look at the analyst coverage, they're all being very cautious, and I can understand why. While Contour doesn't report its initial quarter uh, as an independent company until next week, they did file a 10Q for the first quarter of the year in late June, and the numbers, they weren't great. Revenues fell 2.8% year-over-year. Margins continued to slip. While Wrangler was up 4%, including the impact of currency, Lee was down 4%, driven by declines in all channels. 
They don't give you a ton of detail, but what we do know doesn't exactly bode well for the next quarters. Keep this in mind. However, that was also when Contour declared its massive dividend. And since then, the stock is coming roaring back. It was just too enticing to ignore. But you probably asked, Jim, is the dividend safe? Okay, I think Contour's debt level uh, it seems pretty manageable, frankly. They have two term loans that come to $1.05 billion, as well as a $500 million credit facility that they haven't really drawn down on yet. So how, do, how much do they have to make to keep paying you $2.24 per share uh, every year? Well, that dividend costs them $127 million, uh, $127.5 million. Even if you only think the company can generate $200 $300 million in cash flow, they can afford to cover the payout. And think about it like this. Frank, wouldn't it be incredibly bizarre, inconsistent, and just totally nutty for Contour to de- declare such a large dividend and then swiftly cut it? I mean, I, I did see Dow Chemical do that once. That's about it. Uh, you don't have to believe in a miraculous turnaround to like this stock. You just have to believe that management can stabilize things enough to keep rewarding shareholders. And I want management very much to come on the show, just like Chip Berg did, even though Le- Levi's was down in the dumps. The bottom line... Contour was almost worthless to VF Corp because VF Corp wants it to be wants to be a growth stock. But you know what? If you're an income seeking investor, and I know many of you are, there's a lot to like about this stock. If you prefer a jeans company with growth, I'd steer you to Levi's, especially given what they told us last night. Basically, they're going to have a very good story in 2020. For now, though, I'm betting Contour's dividend is safe and will act as a floor for the stock. It may take them a while to turn things around over that 7.2% yield. Hey, come on. They're paying a wait. They have money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the light round. One of the teams is going to say the bye-bye. Five, six, seven, 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 seven. And then the lighting round is over. Are you ready? Ski guys, over the lighting round. Here's one. We start with Laura in Texas. Laura. Hey, I. You had Albemar ALB on about a year ago. They're right. down 33%. And I'm wondering, is there a better lithium company out there? Or what no, is? we're not going to be in the society that Kinecat in Chile is the best one. But we're staying away from MAG. It's one of the reasons why we did a critical piece last night on Cortava. How about we go to Mary in Georgia? Mary! Hey, Jim. Big Booyah from the Peach State. Terrific to Stop have you. How can I help? Doc, I am looking at is Colgate, symbol is CL. You know what? You're getting a buying opportunity. That Colgate quarter was very good, much better than I expected. The stock is down three. I say pull the trigger. Allen in Florida. Allen. Jimmy, streaming TV is red hot and growing. Apple TV getting ready to come to the dance. Roku in the sweet spot. What do you think about it? Well, you know, Roku is up huge amount. Okay, it's up a huge amount this year. I am in total agreement with you. I think it's the absolute best way to play cord cut. I think, though, that people are going to say, wait a second, it's up 237%, and they're going to panic out of it. And I say, bye, bye, bye. All right, Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer. Dave. Hey, apart from the Andrea Orsell scandal, it's expanding into the U.S. market. It's the pride of Spain. It's Banco Santander. <laughs> that scandal is not so good, but you're right. All right, now this four dollars stock is the largest largest bank in Europe. Uh, I have to tell you, I think Anna Boutine is doing a terrific job, but Europe is so bad. Would I buy it at four and a quarter, Dave? You know what? If you have to, you have to sit on it, you get a six point eight percent yield. She's committed to the yield, but I've got to tell you, Europe is dead money. I do like what she's doing though in America. 
David in New Jersey. David. Hey, how are you, Jim? Thanks for taking my call. Of course. My question, my question for you tonight is Simulations Plus FLP. Um, I've been in this for a while as a healthcare uh, tech play. I've liked the company for years. I'm up about 800% since my original purchase. It's had a tremendous year this year. Uh, It's it's, it's insane. David, look, I I, got to tell you, you know, you hear this sound. You've got to take something off the table. It's just a huge spec stock and you've won. You can't win twice. Let's go to Tom in Virginia. Tom. Booyah, Jim Kramer. Booyah, Tom. I would like to talk to you about Amron Corporation. Oh, my Earlier God. This- okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, Amron is one. I've not been that right on. It, it's a good stock. What can I tell you? I mean, I'll re-look re- I keep re-looking at it, re-looking at it, trying to figure out how to be able to have a good, informed judgment on it. Let's go to Mario in California. Mario! How you doing? It's Mario in California. Hi, right. Jim. I'm about end phase. Oh, my they God. Everyone is asking order. about this end phase. Everyone has asked me about it. It's up 500%. It's a solar play. I don't know why it's up 500%. I got to do more. But please, guys, in my Twitter feed, I accept that you want me to talk about Enphase. I got a lot of other stuff I'm looking at. But Enphase, I'm dropping everything, including my wife, and spending the night with Enphase. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. When will Apple finally get its due? I'm not talking about this meager $4 rally today in response to what I thought was a real good quarter. I would have said the same thing when the stock was up 8 before Fed Chairman Powell cut the Fed funds rate and then cut the legs off the market, although I don't think he really meant to. No, when I say Apple and extension, of course, CEO Tim Cook haven't gotten their fair share of praise. I mean, when will the analysts stop worrying about the slowing of the cell phone business and start focusing on the far more vibrant service revenue stream in a way that makes sense to me? People just don't understand how to evaluate the new Apple. They view it as a sagging hardware story. Just listen to these headlines from the digital edition of the New York Times. Quote, Apple reports declining profits and stagnant growth. Again, end quote, which I guess is better than the newsprint editions header, which just said declining profits again in Apple's latest quarter, end quote. Then the Wall Street Journal weighs in with quoting an analyst, Richard Kramer, blessedly no relation, asked about Apple's relationship with the Chinese. He says, quote, it's not a matter of if, but when Apple gets hit in China, end quote. And, you know, the problem with these two stories, how about the fact that Apple's chi- China business actually I- accelerated this quarter? How about the fact that their software ecosystem got stronger and stronger as the quarter proceeded? You know, there's a VAT tax cut and there was some trade-in stuff, but hey, it was better. Here's what you need to understand. iPhones now account for less than half of Apple sales. You can't be so myopically focused on cell phones that you ignore the more important service revenue stream. That's the stream of the future. It's a stream that's growing at an 18% clip when you back out a one-time item and 300 basis points of currency. Yeah, the dollar's too strong. Once again, we see that the strong dollar's hurting every American company that's in this export business, although that wasn't enough to stop Apple. When you throw in the wearables division, Apple's a juggernaut. There's tremendous growth in Apple Care, Apple Music, Apple Cloud Services, the App Store, and the ads in the App Store. I don't know about you, but every single one of those click, click, click for me. People keep, uh, keep underestimating Apple's new business model. Wearables clock in and in your 50% growth in heaven's sake. They're wiping out the watch business. 
Company still can't meet demand for the AirPods. That's actually bad now. I'm tired of that. Between the wearables and the service stream, they racked up $17 billion in sales this quarter. The phones, $26 billion. But when you throw in the iPad and the Mac, both of which, by the way, had amazing growth, the non-iPhone businesses generated $27.8 billion in sales. Given how much faster those businesses are growing, you can expect them to become a larger and larger part of the mix, the dominant part within a few years. So why don't the analysts get it? Why didn't price target? Why did price targets barely budge? And why didn't anyone upgrade from a hold? There's a lot of holds out there. I got a theory. My theory is that these analysts are the same gang that covers the Fang stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet. Within Fang, Apple is the slowest grower by far. If the iPhone grows at a one percent clip year over year, well, that's a severe disappointment for these people. As for the service revenue stream, I, I, I think they're a loss. I don't think they know how to value it. My solution, you need to view every hardware sale as a, almost like a one-time game. Hardware is inherently cyclical, but the subscription business, that's more like a cable company. Get a cable analyst to follow with a tech analyst. Hey, think about a cable company. It hits you up for more money every month, except Apple's customers have a roughly 99% subscription uh, subscri- satisfaction rate. They ain't going anywhere. Right now, Apple does these analysts no favors by saying that there are 420 million paid subscriptions. Uh-uh, we don't want that. We want to know how many subscribers, not subscriptions. How many? We need that. We need to know the take rate so we can build models. What's the churn? If the churn is low, you can figure out the lifetime value of a subscription. I know this business because in my spare time, I started a subscription business at thestreet.com. It's terrific annuity uh, if you have low churn. Here's the issue, though. A tech analyst who covers hardware or software companies won't understand any of this. They might not recognize the lifetime value of a credit card holder. You can do that stream at Cap. Well, let's say, uh, how about uh, Bank of America? If you have about 1.4 billion people owning an Apple device and you know the take rate and the churn, I think you'd see a terrific recurring revenue stream here that you could put a price earnings multiple on. The, the kind of thing that a cable analyst would totally get. Or it could be covered by a consumer products analyst, a proctor analyst, who would view the handset as a razor and the services as a high-margin razor blade. Until Apple gets this kind of dual coverage, I think the stock will remain ridiculously cheap. What a, a firm could do this and really make, really just plant a, plant a flag here. But give it, give it to an entertainment analyst or a consumer pro, uh, package goods analyst, and I'm betting the stock would catch fire. I don't know how high it would go. I could, on the back of the envelope, easily get to $260. But... Take it from someone who knows the subscription biz. I know Apple stock price will be a heck of a lot higher than it is right now. Stick with Kramer. Look, if you own Apple because of me, and you might because I've been recommending since it was at $5, I don't want that responsibility. But I have a solution. Read the conference call. It's not long. They're very short questions. It is very succinct. And you'll understand why I say own it, don't trade it. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening what it all means get the truth not the spin the news with shepherd smith subscribe to the podcast today